0: Hello, and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell, and I'm thrilled to be joined by TAG partner, Rex On You, for today's episode. Rich will be joining us later.
1: Hi, Kurt, and hello to all of our listeners and viewers. It's great to be here. And we're honored today to be joined by a very special guest, a good friend, General Dave Goldfein. The former 21st Chief of Staff of the U.S. Air Force.
0: Thanks, Rex. General Goldfein is a modest guy. He's insisted we call him Dave. We'll do it. Dave, he has a very distinguished career of leadership in the U.S. Air Force as Chief of Staff of the Air Force. Uh, The general served as the senior uniformed Air Force officer responsible for the entire organization, training and equipping uh, 685,000 active duty guard, reserve, and civilian forces serving the United States and overseas. Dave, we thank you for your 37 years of service, and we're honored to have you on Tea Leaves today. Thanks, Kurt. And Rexon, it's great to see you both. So, Dave, we had a good chance to catch up with you later. You're down in Texas, in San Antonio, a lovely place outside of Washington. Give us just a couple of minutes on reflection after serving the nation for 37 years with distinction, you know, basically retiring, accomplishing all that you have. Now where you are, as you look back, what's it like? How do you feel? What's your uh, transition like?
2: You know, I, re- I think a lot about uh, there was an exit interview, I think, with President Obama that I watched uh, years ago and someone asked him the same question, you know, eight years later, how do you feel? And I think uh, he said something to the effect of, you know, one word comes to mind, closure. We didn't get everything done. We wanted to get done, but we got a lot done and I feel good about it. That's where I am right now. I feel a sense of closure. There was a moment in the Oval Office with the president when they were uh, swearing in my successor, General CQ Brown. And the president looked over at me and he said, uh, hey, Dave, anything you'd like to say? I said, "I said, you know, sir, today represents a bit of a bookend for me. You know, 37 years ago, I raised my right hand and joined this United States Air Force with my best friend by my side. And here she stands by my side 37 years later, and I'm watching uh, you and the vice president swear in one of my other best friends mm-hmm. and a guy that I had a hand in selecting uh, obviously the president's choice, uh, General C.Q. Brown. So so I feel great. I just uh, I have a sense of closure. I'm very proud of what we accomplished. And I'm really proud of the only real legacy I think you leave behind, which is the team you raised to replace you.
0: Yeah, that's really well said. You know, it's interesting. I've been reflecting a lot on that lately. I had written a book review about a book about, uh, about Richard Holbrook. And, y- mm. you know, it's interesting how many people near the end of their career, do not feel satisfied with what they accomplished. Uh, a sense of either sadness or you know reaching for the brass ring but not quite getting there. And mm-hmm. it's wonderful to hear. No, it's I think it's much more common, particularly in Washington than we realize, given you know how many people are always striving in general, to have a sense of peace and a sense of satisfaction of what you built, particularly on the human side, that's that's really important and it's really something to treasure. Rexon.
1: Dave, can I ask you to follow up the the accomplishments, the 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 top few that you leave behind from your tenure, not just as the chief of staff of the Air Force, but also as the vice. Talk a little bit about those. And then second, you know, on your watch as chief, the coronavirus arrived. And, you know, it's not just the Air Force, but all parts of our, all elements of our military, you know. There are parts that just can't afford to go on lockdown. And I've heard you talk about some of the incredible success that you witnessed in the Air Force dealing with the pandemic. So could you could you go a little deeper on that particular challenge? And, you know, as as different facets of of our economy, of our country look to reopen, what were those very practical operational elements that you think helped contribute? to sustaining the vital operations of the military during the pandemic. So those two, two aspects.
2: Yeah. So maybe I'll, uh, Rex, and I'll hit the first, second one first, which cause I can tie in the first one because it really does come down to people relationships and, and really talent management, right? Finding potential in people that they maybe don't see in themselves and then producing opportunities and, and pushing them perhaps harder than they uh, they were comfortable with. So in terms of COVID, You know, we we assembled pretty quickly the team and established what I called three resets. Reset number one was, how do we sustain critical operations that the nation will not provide relief to the United States Air Force, regardless of how bad the pandemic gets? And remember in the beginning, we really didn't, none of us knew just how bad it was going to get. And so we identified key missions and said, look, the nation is not going to give us any relief in a safe, secure, effective nuclear deterrent. Regardless of the pandemic, that operation has got to continue 24-7. The nation relies on space capabilities every day from ATMs to, to Google Maps to you name it. The nation is going to require access to space. The nation is going to require global mobility. And so how do we reset to be able to continue those operations. So we went through that, what we call it operational reset. Once we got through that, we set the next target, which is how do we now sustain operations if this pandemic lasts for a year or more? How do we live and operate with a, a cyclical virus in our midst? Given not only these operations that I just identified, but more so now the pipeline that feeds them. Because you can't stop bringing new men and women in. You can't stop training. You can't stop promoting. And so how do we sustain operations with a cyclical virus in our midst? And then operational reset number three was, all right, so now how do we ensure that we accelerate new ways of doing business, given that this is the new abnormal, if you will, or the new normal? So I think the success that we enjoyed was to a large part because we pushed decision authority down to where those where the rubber meets the road could actually move out without having to wait for the very senior leadership of the air force to give guidance. You know, my my point to young commanders was, hey, don't wait for me. You know, for so many decisions, I don't actually add value, I just add time. So Don't wait for me. Let's move out. Get after it. Here's your sort of right, left bookends. Mm -hmm. And then local commanders go for it and run. And they took the ball and just ran with it. And so, you know, we brought in, I'm not my, you know, part of the reason I've asked Kurt, you know, to go as, you know, my new call sign, Dave, is I don't pretend to speak for my successor, but I will tell you prior to leaving we had brought in about 10,000 new airmen through our pipeline training and had about seven positive cases. Wow. And that Mm. gives us a sense of sort of the success of pushing decision Mm. authority down. So that's the COVID thinking I would offer you in terms of how we were able to get to a point where now we are continuing global operations in this new abnormal, if you will. And then to the uh, first part of your question, which is the things I'm most proud of, you know, I will go back to the the only real legacy I truly believe a leader leaves behind that lasts are the people that you uh, raise to replace you, and the investment that you make in the leadership team to take on challenges and just create positive outcomes. And so I'm, you know, I'm really proud of uh, the team that's in place now, and what I'm seeing them accomplish, as I cheer them on from the from the retired sidelines.
0: That's a very good answer, and I think it's a it's a reminder to all folks who aspire to leadership that. What's really important is really not your career, but the careers of the people that you support and nurture over time. So that's, and I I saw that when you were, I remember I I was at the Center for New American Security once and you came over and you spent most of your time talking about the team that you had brought over with you. And I thought how unusual that was for normal military organizations when the leader talks more about himself. So, you know, I thought that was powerful. Look, uh, as you know about our um, the purpose of Tea Leaves is to help people think about institutions and the new trajectory in the Asia-Pacific. So I want to ask you sort of an open-ended question, Dave. Do you think the Air Force, like we're clearly moving a little bit away from the Middle East. Obviously, we're going to have some legacy responsibilities and things that we're going to have to handle carefully. But the new challenge for the 21st century is clearly going to play out in Asia is the Air Force configured effectively for the challenges that we're going to face? Or do you, uh, as it's currently constituted, or do you think there's going to need to be kind of a whole scale change in which we, you know, move out of some of our forward deployed stuff that are vulnerable, be able to uh, attack from, you know, positions behind more unmanned stuff, help us understand philosophically how you see the challenges and whether the Air Force is ready or it's going to need a fundamental rethink.
2: Yeah, I would say, uh, Kurt, that very often I would testify, I would get the question, you know, are we prepared for a conflict with a a nuclear peer? And what I would tell them is I could look you in the eye again, talking now with previous uh, chief, I said, I I said, uh, you know, Senator, I can look you in the eye right now and tell you that should we go to conflict with a, a peer today? I'm confident that we would prevail it would be long it would be bloody it would be expensive but I have I'm confident having studied them that we have what we need to prevail today the question is i'm the 20 I was the 21st chief and what and if I went to war with a peer during my time frame i would do so with the force that was designed and built by my predecessors about four to five chiefs previous such as the lead time to build a service. And so I said, where I'm focused in is I'm focused on Chief 24 that will become Chief of Staff of the Air Force in 2030. And will she or he have what they need to prevail? Because if they go to war in 2030, they will go to war with the Goldfein built force. And so I need, it's my job to ensure that she or he can have the same confidence testifying before the Senate that they can win in 2030 that I have today in 2020. And so it gets to your question of configuration. And I would say that the military, the joint team needs to and is moving aggressively towards operating in all domains simultaneously and being able to bring so many simultaneous dilemmas for an adversary that perhaps we might achieve the deterrence we truly want because we don't actually want to fight. We want to cause leaders around the world to pause and question whether they can accomplish their political objectives through military means. And what I would often speak to my counterparts uh, out there through various means and say, look, you know, If you think that you can just defend your eastern shoreline or your southern border and that is going to keep you safe, you don't understand where the United States military is going because you will never, ever again look in just one direction. You better look up. You better look down. You better look right. You better look left. You better look in cyber because we're operating in all of those domains simultaneously and you can't. You can't count race the, the analogy I would use often is, uh, you know, the one if by land, two if by sea, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, how many, uh, lanterns does a current day Paul Revere need to hang in the North church tower? And the answer is about eight, right? Because we're coming by land, by sea, by air, by space, by cyber, by undersea, and we're coming all together. That is, the, that is the work of the current Joint Chiefs and the current Secretary of Defense and the, and the Sec- Office of Secretary of Defense to be able to pull this joint team together to operate in the way I just described. That's the configuration that's required for the future in my opinion.
0: Let me ask one, and then over to Rex. And so, so in terms of our overarching objective in Asia is the maintenance of peace and stability. So this remarkable progression of you know wealth and you know uh, interchange between the nations of Asia, you know, are peaceful. If you had to just describe though our our overall posture is our posture. Are we seeking dominance? Dominance of the kind that we've had. Basically, the last forty or fifty years, or are we seeking deterrence? And I know that that you could say, "Hey, look, I'm going to answer the question differently." But I, I'd be curious—like, have we are we now entering a period in which it's not possible to have the kind of dominance over China uh, that we've enjoyed, you know, again for decades in Asia more generally?
2: Yeah, I would describe it, Kurt, as I think uh, what I always advocated for was uh, I believe where we we must collaborate where we can and compete where we must Mm -hmm. my only criticism and i've said this you know publicly before my only criticism of our national defense strategy and and while i believe the strategy itself is sound sometimes i found in execution we painted too simply the world into ones and zeros Mm -hmm. evil and good and the world is far more complex than that and so there are actually plenty of opportunities to find common interests in or certain areas when you completely disagree with others. And the example I would use is our relationship with Russia. As complex as that is, think about it. All this time we've been sort of after each other since, you know, Crimea and, you know, the election uh, intrusion, we've been living together in the in International Space station. So clearly, we found a way to find common interests above the atmosphere, while we have very few below. Such is the nature of complex international relationships. So I I don't think of the world in terms of where we need to dominate. I look at the world in terms of where we can lead. And where we can lead is finding areas where we can collaborate, because I truly believe with countries in Asia, we have far more common interests than opposing interests, and in those areas where we need to be clear eyed and compete, look, we're Americans. We know how to compete and we know how to win and we love competition. And so I think we can do both.
1: Dave, can I, I know we want to talk a little bit uh, and we will get to allies and partners in Asia, but I want to come back to your comments about the full spectrum nature of power across the domains and to ask you sort of a couple pointed questions within the realm of air power. Um, the first is, you know, you're you're a pilot. You've flown all sorts of platforms. I know I've read, you know, over 4,200 hours, flight hours. I, I would love to know, to your point about you thinking about the 24th chief of staff and the service that she or he has, how do you see the future of manned aircraft and and perhaps just to shade my question a little bit how much of a future do you see for manned aircraft and i'll let you you take that one uh, however you'd like and and the second is as you think about all aspects of power you know the air force oversees two-thirds of our nuclear triad should we have a triad is it still necessary it's you know an incredibly expensive dimension of our military force and power. Um, but as you think about the 21st century, rise of China, Russia still out there, a great power competition, is it still an essential, absolute necessity of our military and its mission for our interests and the interests of our partners around the world?
2: Yeah, so the first part uh, I'll hit, which is uh, the Kurt's point about configuration and the future of manned and unmanned aircraft. I uh, I honestly, you know, we used to, uh, part of what my team and I tried to move forward, very much so uh, by the way, with not only the help, but under the leadership and guidance of the Secretary of the Air Force uh, in my tenure, you know, primarily a a small period of time with Secretary James, but mostly with Secretary Wilson, Heather Wilson, Mm -hmm my classmate from the Academy who mm-hmm. uh, we used to, we used to joke and said, uh, you know, how did the class valedictorian and the class clown grow up to be, you know, chief and secretary of the air force. Right. Uh, and then secretary you, Barbara. She Parrott. was in
0: my class at Oxford just to say, no,
2: perfect. Yeah. I was talking to her last night, actually. So what we tried to do is to try to, to change the dialogue from trucks to highways, which is hard to do in a truck town. Mm -hmm. right? And so what I mean by that is, you know, traditionally, we as an Air Force are very platform-centric, right? We talk Mm -hmm. airplanes, you know, and we talk weapons and radars. I mean, so it's all about the platform. And we, like the Navy, tend to man platforms. The Army and the Marine Corps tend to arm soldiers and Marines. And it's just a perspective that each service culturally Mm -hmm. approaches. The problem with a platform-centric approach is that it misses the primary point of it actually doesn't matter what the truck looks like what matters is how well the tr- trucks connect to a highway to be able to share data and information at the speed of relevance so that you're mm-hmm. operating so fast that an adversary can can never counter you right you just you're just peppering them from all mm-hmm. sides and so i used to joke with the uh, you know members of congress and i said you know the problem we're going to have is once we you, you and I end this conversation, and I talk to you about Joint All Domain Command and Control and how we connect, you know, this Joint Team digitally. There's not going to be a single highway lobbyist that's going to visit you, but there's going to be plenty of truckers, and they're going to advocate for their favorite platform. And you know, there were three criteria that I gave to industry as chief to tell them, hey, if you don't bring these three attributes to a weapon system, you need to know that I'm not in, I'm no longer interested. Does it connect? Does it share? And does it learn? Does it connect to a highway with data sharing? Does it share not only with our joint teammates, but more importantly with our allies and partners because we cannot leave them behind? And then does it learn? Have we brought artificial intelligence at that tactical edge? And so when you're investing in the highway, guess what? Boy, that's non-sexy. It's really hard. And I believe it's absolutely essential. And I've had a conversation with two secretaries of defense to say, uh, and you remember this, Rexon, when we were working together, the conversations we had that said, you know, this is hard work, but to shift this department from analog to digital is the most important foundation that you can ever build for all your successors. So for me... Manned or un- unmanned is actually not the relevant question for me. For me, it's does it connect? Does it share? Does it learn? Is it part of a highway? Is it part of a network? If so, then guess what? Bring it. Uh, if not, guess what? You are you're you're behind and fallen farther behind. To your point about the triad, I'm one that, and and I will tell you, I uh, I studied this. Long and hard, and I'm not the only one, by the way. You know, people don't remember often remember that, you know, Secretary Mattis, you know, came into the department initially questioning the the need for a triad, and through the nuclear posture review and all the work that we did, and I was since I was part of that, I sort of also learned with him, and came to my own individual conclusion that the triad is as relevant today as it has ever been because it connects to every civil military operation involving military power in ways that sometimes you don't envision. And what I offered to members of Congress when they would talk to me about going to a a dyad, I would say, here's two things I would offer you, Senator or, or Congressman. Number one, I would never offer you advice that would give up our capability without getting something in return, unilaterally disarming without seeing a measurable approach by a nuclear peer to do the same would be very foolish. And number two, we can never give up our second strike capability when it comes to defending this nation. And if you were to give up one of the legs of the triad one could make the calculation on the other side that they could win a nuclear exchange. Mm -hmm. And we always want them to know that those 400 missiles buried in the northern tier is something they can never get at and will always be capable of a second strike. As terrible and tragic as that sounds, we should never give up that capability as a nation. Because remember, we also provide that nuclear umbrella for a number of our allies and partners who rely Mm -hmm. on that and so i'm a believer that if one of the roles of the joint chiefs as the joint chiefs offer advice is to keep to try to keep our nation out of you know major catastrophic war then we have to have the tools at our disposal to do that and a triad is the foundation of that tool
0: You always spoke eloquently and strategically about the external challenge and how the Air Force and the other services, and always talked about this integrated set of capabilities, other militaries, Coast Guard, and also the civilian component as well. I want to ask you a different question, and this is a harder one. So is there a crisis in civil military affairs now? You know, uh, this will be aired pretty Soon, but you know, we've had uh, another Secretary of Defense dismissed. We've had some challenges with the uh, roles and missions domestically. How to think about that? It, certainly, there's been areas of supreme discomfort. You know, it, mm-hmm. first before we even talk about what to do about it, help me, help us, help our listeners diagnose the problem. Is there a crisis in civil-military relations?
2: I don't believe there is a crisis. Kurt. I think that what there is is a tension, and that tension is cyclical. And you could argue that perhaps it's on a higher level now, but it also, I mean, it, it goes in waves. Yeah. And and so, each side, civilian leadership and military leadership, just need to recognize their roles, their responsibilities, and their the importance of that relationship. And tension in that relationship, if respectful, is actually quite positive. Yeah. You, you actually don't want, I don't think, to have such a close relationship that you don't bring your opinions forward on where you think the nation ought to go. You know, I'll, I'll give a kudos here to Rexon. Re- Rexon was by far, you know, when, when I worked as the director of the Joint Staff, my job was to keep the second floor of the Pentagon, the Joint Staff, humming. Rexon's job was to keep the third floor humming. Our job together was to ensure that there was no unintentional error between those floors mm-hmm. and to keep the Secretary of Defense and the Chairman at least linked from a knowledge standpoint on what was going on so they could each do their per- per- roles when it came to the military mill relationship. When I became Chief, I actually went and looked up my job description, and it was it was interesting. It essentially says, do whatever the Secretary of the Air Force tells you to do and run the air staff. That is is somewhat the role of the chief of staff of the Air Force. The decision authority for moving an Air Force forward does not reside with the chief. It actually resides based on law, Goldwater-Nichols, it resides with the secretariat. So, So what the secretary brings forward as the civilian leader is almost all the decision authority for moving the force forward, but very often not not as much credibility because you know she or he has not grown up in the service. What the chief brings is the power of the office of the chief for influence. And so what you need is this relationship between the top civilian leader and the top military leader, where you bring both influence and decision authority. And when I walk down that halls of, you know, the what they call the glass doors, which is where all the paintings of the secretaries and the chiefs of the past and uh, and by the way it's it's when you become chief it's l- sort of like a harry potter movie their eyes move when you walk <laughs> you know, through the hallway right so uh so what you realize when you look at the and and you ask the question as i did okay what teams were most successful what teams actually moved the service forward and it was it was the teams that were mature enough to understand that you can't do it alone. A chief can't move the service alone. A secretary can't move the service alone. Goldwater-Nichols was actually designed well to ensure that these two leaders have got to be mature enough to understand that they've got to work together to move that service forward. That needs to happen within the service, within the Office of Secretary of Defense, and within the White House. And if if those roles are understood and then the tension and the friction is respectful, then uh, we move forward pretty well as a nation. And oh, by the way, that does not mean that you always agree. I did not agree 100% with Secretary Wilson. I did not agree 100% with Secretary Barrett or Secretary James. But when we had our disagreements, we did that privately. And then once a decision was made, I understood my role was execution. And so uh, I think, you know, if we can, if we can, I wouldn't say return to that point, because in many ways we are there in several areas of government, but the more we can understand those roles, the better we'll be off as a nation.
1: Dave, can I ask, I know we're reaching time, but I want to take us out to Asia for a question here and to ask you, you know, a fair amount has been thought about, written around what is an apparent strategy of China to pursue an ability to execute what they call the anti-access area denial strategy, or the acronym A2AD, to effectively be able to push us out of of Asia, out into the Pacific, and to deny us an ability to come back in. And I know this this has been a focus of uh, the Pentagon, of national security strategy, for some time uh, but we've also watched the rise of china's capabilities and power tell us a little bit of your views where do you think we are right now in our capabilities presented against this type of challenge and how do we think about the future And i know some of this comes back to the eight lanterns but more precisely i guess maybe um where are we today on this? Because I, I hear a number of views, you know, more privately expressed uh, with more concern. So I'm curious uh, how, how you see this right now.
2: Yeah, Rexton. So I always believed as chief, and I certainly believe now that mili- the use of military power absent a political and economic framework rarely succeeds, mm-hmm. So in many ways, this is more of a political and economic discussion than it is a military discussion. And the question is, what do we want to achieve politically first in, uh, in Asia? And then secondly, how does that political, that where we were trying to achieve politically, how does that fit within the economic framework? Because I'm sure within the Asia group, you could make the case that China has been one of the greatest beneficiaries of the last 70 plus years of world order. And would not have been able to grow to the economic power that it is today had there not been trade, had there not been markets that they could get access to. And so, you know, if we take the art of the long view, uh, one could argue that she and Putin will not live forever. And so, how do we manage this politically and economically? And then use military power as that, you know, as that tool that's in the right hand pocket of the Secretary of State to be pulled out when required to negotiate to a better place. You know, I think back on, you know, you met Kurt, you mentioned Richard Holbrook. So there's a great story I remember of Richard Holbrook and Mike Short. Mike Short was the three star air component commander, you know, during the first Bosnia campaign. And they went to visit Milosevic. And there's this great story where Milosevic turned to General Short and General Short looked at him and said, Mr. President, uh, I have two options. In my right hand, I have a U-2 that does reconnaissance. In my left hand, I have a B-2 that does precision strike. The question for you is which one will you force me to use? And President Milosevic chose unwisely, and we end up using the B-2. He could have chosen the U-2. That's, in my mind, one of the best examples of military power used the way it's intended, which is 100% supportive of the Secretary of State and our diplomats to be able to negotiate from a position of strength to a better peace, not only for the United States, but also for the world. So I I don't, you know, from an anti-access aerial denial standpoint, again, there may be areas where China has invested where they have got more capability now, but the real question for Chinese leaders is what's in their best long-term interest? Is it really, really to to deny access to global markets with the number of new jobs they've got to create every month with the largest growing population, is that really in their best interest? I just can't see that it, it it serves them in any way, shape, or form to keep moving in that direction. And so I go back to the Russia example, you know, common interests above the atmosphere, no common interests below the atmosphere. What are our common interests with China? Where do we find areas where it's actually in both nations' interest to cooperate and collaborate even though in other areas we are absolutely in open competition. We actually can walk and chew gum. We can do both. Yeah, that's a good way to conclude and I think it it gives us some hope for
0: a world ahead where we're both prepared uh, for things go wrong but also
1: keep our door open for continuing cooperation. Rexon? Thanks Kurt. Dave, my real thanks for joining Kurt and I today on tea leaves. It is terrific to see you. So good to know that the transition is underway well for you. And we really appreciate you spending some time with us today.
2: No, thank you both. And uh, thanks. Uh, we, I could have gone on all day. So I really appreciate the time. It's
0: great to see the friendship and the the warmth between you two. And uh, again, Dave, it's great to see uh, transitions are challenging. It's great to see that you're thriving. It's wonderful. We look forward to continuing to see you. I'm going to be reaching out and some other things. I'll just let you know about that in advance. And I want to thank all our listeners. Please be sure to rate us on Spotify, iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to mention that you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with Dave with General Goldfine. You can see his new beard online on our website at theasiagroup.com. Stay safe and healthy, and we'll see you next time on Tea Leagues.